Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Public Art in Canada, Critical Perspectives. Introduction. Off Base by Annie Guerin. During excavation of Montreal's Notre Dame Street in the summer of 1834, workers preparing to put down water pipes made an unexpected discovery. In a long-forgotten civic drinking well lay the slightly bruised head of a finely sculpted marble bust. The severed head of King George III had once belonged to what was likely Montreal's first public monument, erected on the nearby Place des Armes roughly 60 years before its discovery. The bust, a symbol of the might of the British Empire, had originally been shipped to Montreal in 1766, less than three years after Canada had come under British rule. It was sent by Jonas Hanway, a London merchant and philanthropist, along with two fire pumps and a relief contribution of 8,500 pounds sterling. The donation was intended to show the support of the British people for the colony, following a 1765 fire that had raised most of Montreal's business core, now Old Montreal. The combined gift of relief funds and public art demonstrates that, for the British philanthropist, charity was also an act of patriotism. The monument, sculpted by Joseph Wilton, the king's official sculptor since 1761, had a short but turbulent life. It was installed in 1773, near Montreal's Église Notre-Dame on Place des Armes, a then popular meeting square. Over the next few years, the sculpture, installed at eye level under a small canopy, was repeatedly vandalized with painted graffiti. As the Quebec Act came into effect in the spring of 1775, subjects of British extraction protested around the sculpture, angered by the new privileges granted to French Canadians. The bust was once again defaced. This time, the marble head was quaffed with a makeshift mitre, a rosary of rotten potatoes was strung around its neck, and it was draped with a banner that read, Le Pape du Canada et les sorte anglais. The authorities ordered the monument restored to its original appearance, and a douce in piestre bounty was offered for the capture of the vandals. They were never found. The bust disappeared the following winter during the American invasion of the city. American soldiers, it would seem, ripped the monument from its base and disposed of the vilified symbol of British rule by dropping it into the well near Place des Armes, where it lay out of sight for the next six decades. The recovered head of George III was eventually claimed by the Natural History Society of Montreal. It now belongs to the collection of the McCord Museum in Montreal. The tumultuous history of the bust of George III testifies to the cultural, economic, and political struggles that involved British interest, those of early Canadians of French and English extraction, as well as those of the Americans who invaded Canada in 1775 during the War of Independence. A further analysis of the artist's and the donor's intentions, as well as the relations of the work instigated within its actual geopolitical environment and among its various publics, reveals how public art participates in discourses that contribute to the production of space, 
and that are particular to a given historical period. Similar claims can be made for the analysis of other instances of high-profile Canadian public art. They become truly meaningful when they are explored within concrete networks of Canadian concerns and forms of agency. For example, Corridart, an exhibition of contemporary public art commissioned by the Arts and Culture Committee of the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal, also benefits from an examination in relation to an extended context. For the event, 22 large-scale works were installed along Sherbrooke Street on July 7th, about 10 days before the opening of the Games. These works followed a route 8 kilometers long, stretching from Atwater Avenue in the west through the heart of the city to the Olympic site in the east. The works were by prominent Quebec artists, many of them with international credentials, including Melvin Charnay, Francois Sullivan, Bill Vazan, Pierre Ayotte, and Michael Haslam. But few viewers had the opportunity to see these artworks, let alone ponder their meaning or contemplate their aesthetic quality. With police protection, following orders issued by the mayor of Montreal, municipal employees dismantled the works during the night of the 13th of July, three days before the opening of the Olympic festivities. What does this blatant case of censorship tell us about cultural and political perspectives in Quebec in the 1970s? What does it reveal about access to public spaces in this context? What does it say about the perceived role and power of art and self-representation in the community? And how would the answers to these questions influence interpretations of the works of art that constituted Corée d'Art? Analogous questions need to be asked of the string of memorials built across Canada following the December 6, 1989 massacre of female students at Montreal's École Polytechnique. More than 50 commemorative works of art were erected across the country in solidarity with the victims and their families. They were commissioned and installed in communities as diverse as Charlottetown, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, and Vancouver, and other towns and cities. In each project, aesthetic choices were clearly motivated by the need to create sites where communities could physically come together to mourn the 14 young victims. But beyond strict remembrance, the artworks also functioned and continue to function as strong visual condemnations of violence against women in Canada and sexism in general. What does this approach to monumental memorial art tell us about Canada's changing attitudes and cultural perceptions of gender? In what ways does it evoke the potential of art to inspire social change? And has the meaning of the works evolved in the years that have followed the tragedy as memory itself has begun to fade? The territorial and temporal analysis proposed in each of these instances, rooting the works firmly in the Canadian context, goes beyond Frederick Jameson's plea to always historicize. Indeed, the conditions of meaning for art in general and public art in particular constitute nodes where time and place are inextricably and fundamentally bound. It is crucial to understand this issue of particularized production and reception of meaning in public art because it challenges a canon in the discipline of art history that oscillates between two distinct poles. In the more traditional scholarship, works of public art are often discussed as sculpture, painting, or mosaic, an abstraction from the temporality and environment in which they evolve. Artworks are then conceptually forced into the ahistorical white cube where iconographic or formalist readings of art can be performed with little interference from extra-aesthetic discourses. 
but an exclusively iconographic or formalistic reading of the bust of George III would fail to recognize the complex cultural and political roles ascribed to public art in Canada's colonial period. It would most likely ignore the fact that styles in and of themselves may represent ideological, or in this case colonial, positions. It would also circumvent debates about how meaning is formed, how it varies in specific contexts, and in intercourse with actual publics. In fact, the bust of George III gains for being appreciated as an agent involved in the struggle over space, language, identity, economy, and politics that shaped Canada in its early modern period. At the other end of the spectrum, a great deal of recent scholarly work, rooted in the social history of art, cultural studies, and activist practices, tends to perceive public art as always and necessarily polemical and political. Suzanne Lacey's seminal Mapping the Terrain, New Genre Public Art from 1995, W.J.T. Mitchell's Art and the Public Sphere from 1992, Rosalind Deutsch's Evictions, Art and Spatial Politics from 1996, Sergei's Michalski's Public Monuments, Art in Political Bondage, 1870-1997, written in 1998, Nicholas Burard's Rational Aesthetics from 2002, Miwan Kwan's One Place After Another, Site-Specific Art and Locational Identity from 2004, Jacques Rancière's The Politics of Aesthetics, The Distribution of the Sensible from 2004, and Grant Kester's Conversation Pieces, Community and Communication in Modern Art, 2004, also all argue in their own way that in public spaces, the boundaries between art and social slash political practices are increasingly blurred. To the degree that art in public places is often inextricable and sometimes indistinguishable from social engineering, activism, or political action. This critical practice is actually in line with current art production. Much contemporary art attempts some form of thoughtful participation in today's great cultural, social, and political debates. As Christian Catty observes, the concept of the political in the field of art has gained new systemic meaning and appeal after a seemingly misunderstood postmodern holiday that today appears more productive than the average vacation and more inventive than good intentions and a politically correct realignment. Yet, while contemporary critical and situated understandings of art, place, and history are often extended to promote broader conceptions of public art, this approach becomes problematic when the quality or success of the artwork is mainly measured through the lens of its effect on civil society. There has indeed been a tendency in recent art history and art criticism to consider public art primarily in terms of extra aesthetic concerns often motivated by a desire for a meta-experience of space inspired by the rediscovery of the work by Guy Debord, Michel Ducatou, and Henri Lefebvre, much contemporary scholarship situates the quotidian reality of users of a given place at the center of their inquiry. The post-work produced by the art-slash-activist group Grand Fury, for example, has often been discussed in terms of queer politics, arguably to the detriment of the sophisticated aesthetic strategies the work deploys. The same applies to much of the artistic production by Dick Averns, a Calgary-based sculptor and performance artist 
whose work denounces the commodification of space as well as social and spatial ex exclusion in Canadian public spaces, or to the work created by the artists associated with Quebec's boreal art-slash-nature artist-run centre, who explore links between contemporary artistic practices, nature, and ecological sustainability. The value of their work, which fully engages with contemporary aesthetic debates, has even been questioned when it did not measurably change popular attitudes towards homosexuality, democracy, or the environment. While the examples cited above undoubtedly participate in debates that far exceed the aesthetic reaches of the work, art should never be reduced merely to its context or potential performativity. In the Canadian context, this question is compounded since Canadian art has often been studied in terms of its contribution to identity formation and nationalism. As a case in point, both the Group of Seven and the Montreal Automatistes intentionally sought to provide Canada and Quebec with self-images through art, whether it was by exalting the beauty of the Canadian shield or by provoking, through the means of abstract art and radical subjectivity, a break with colonial visual and intellectual traditions. Contemporary artworks by Korean-born artist Jin Mi-Yoon and Brian Jungen, a Canadian artist with Swiss and Dunza First Nation roots, prolong this cultural process while revealing the complexity of identities and nationhood that challenge earlier, more homogeneous visions of the nation and of the public discourses of identity. Both draw upon cliches of Canadian culture, the art of the Group of Seven or West Coast Aboriginal art, to evoke specific cultural traditions. They simultaneously expose processes of cultural diversification, hybridization, and assimilation by confronting these symbols of the nation with their own body or consumer objects produced in a global economy. The examples of Yoon and Youngin seem particularly relevant since, in a similar fashion, viewers in public places are constantly called upon to reflect and make sense of their world through a variety of divergent public representations, for example, in the media, fashion, architecture, and public art. Public art is therefore even more dependent than other artistic manifestations on the ongoing process of identity formation. This should not be surprising to readers of this book, since to borrow a thought from Aaron Manning, the practice of superimposing identity onto questions of national territory has long been the norm in Canadian cultural politics. And, like urban planning and architecture, public art is a direct form of inscription onto the land. However, if public art can be seen as an attempt to petrify accepted notions of collective identity in a given place because of its daily engagements with increasingly diverse publics, actual bodies, and subjectivities, it also becomes a site where homogeneity or legitimacy of these representations is constantly challenged and reframed. This crucial link between art and place also shifts traditional conceptions of an artwork's medium, in public art practices, whatever the medium used, it is always coupled with place, a complex material that combines visual and tactile textures with spatial practices, local histories, and other specific properties. Take, for example, a series of public walks performed in Canada's capital by artist Robert Watson in 2005. Equipped with a surveillance camera fixed to his chest and a viewable LCD screen buckled to his back, 
Watson walked through the urban environment, creating real-time black-and-white digital sketches of the city as he encountered it. Passers-by followed the performance on the streets, experienced a mediated rendering of what the artist saw, as if they were looking not just through his eyes, but through his body. In analyzing this kind of work, viewers must, of course, consider histories of art, public performance, and new media, as well as understand critically the processes of artistic and digital mediation. But certain conditions, including those created by the omnipresence of surveillance technologies in Canadian cities, stricter policing, increasing gentrification, and specific urban smells and textures that David Howes describes as the cultural life of the senses, Canada's specific climatic conditions and what Canadians consider acceptable public behavior, have made this type of artistic practice, where the artist plays the role of the flaneur wandering through the city core, equipped with thousands of dollars of sophisticated equipment strapped to his body, not only possible but safe, at least in this specific urban context. We need to make sense of the current circumstances in which public art is installed and experienced, a challenge rendered increasingly complex by the proliferation of spaces that seem public but are in fact private, such as shopping malls or the places of transience that Marc Auger has termed non-places. We must also recognize that after 9-11, it has become more difficult than ever to think in generalities about the conceptions and uses of public space. Arguably, Robert Watson's work, and all the other works presented in this book, could not have materialized or their meaning would have been significantly altered in places such as Washington, D.C., Moscow, or Phnom Penh. That is to say, when the complex organization of space is recognized as a material constituting the work, the possibilities of meaning of the work are significantly enriched, as is the understanding of art's conditions of production. All the concerns outlined above tear public art from its conventional base. Although what has mainly been addressed so far is the metaphorical rejection of the base as marking a physical or rhetorical division between art and life, such contemporary public art also develops aesthetic strategies that avoid the use of a pedestal. Such art dissolves its sound or code or anchors itself directly into a concrete place or the, into the body of the artist. Furthermore, Canadian public artworks are literally being torn from their base and re-examined in relation to contemporary discourses on race, gender, and politics. These issues that so manifestly call for reconceptualization of public art in the Canadian context are what motivated the choice of the essays and artworks printed in this book. Public Art in Canada, Critical Perspectives, combines contributions from well-established Canadian scholars, curators, and artists, and also introduces a new generation of intellectuals and artists attracted to the fertile field of research afforded by public art. While their concerns and interests range over the historical, the contemporary, and the theoretical, they are all struggling to find richer means for addressing public art, means that will reveal its broad and multifaceted engagement with public space and to the public sphere. Further understanding of the aesthetic commitment of public art practices and demonstrate how aesthetic strategies are often used by artists to elicit intellectual, sensual, or emotional responses that can only be obtained through artistic practices in public places. 
our attempts to engage in contemporary discussions about Canadian public art have been organized along four main lines of inquiry. Part 1, the state and the negotiation of taste. Part 2, memory, politics, and controversies. Part 3, activist practices in public art today. And Part 4, contemporary perspective on public art. Addressing specifically state-led public art projects, the first section introduces a broad reflection on how styles and artistic practices become equated with social values and come to serve perceived shared interests. When this happens, preference for certain aesthetic forms no longer corresponds to personal taste. Instead, art conceals the cultural, political, or economic positions it serves, evoking the fiction of a national taste. The four contributions in part one reveal how, by scratching the patina of public artworks, viewers can uncover the manipulation of place and the complex negotiation of social desires and values performed and perpetuated through what has come to be accepted as national aesthetics. The first contribution to the book, The Wrong Commemoration, Frederick Martlett Bell Smith's painting of the state funeral of Sir John Thompson by Eva Major Marathi, delves into the long-forgotten public art controversy that goes right to the heart of the political nature of public representation. Frederick Marlett Bellsmith painted three monumental works to commemorate the passing of Prime Minister Sir John Thompson, Queen Victoria's tribute to her dead Canadian Premier, the state funeral of Sir John Thompson in Halifax, and the arrival of the Blenheim at Halifax. The artists expected the Canadian government to buy all three paintings for display either in the National Gallery or on Parliament Hill, where a few commissions and portraits were installed. Yet the works were not purchased by their intended patron and were, for all intents and purposes, erased from the history of Canadian art. Discussing the process of federal art commissions in Canada in the 19th century in the absence of an actual public art policy, even Major Marathi proposes that Bellsmith's failure resulted from a misconception by the artist about the nature of commemorative public art and, equally, his misunderstanding of the nature of political power in the developing Canadian democracy of the time. Joan Couteau's A Drive Through the Canadian History, People, Cars, and Public Art at Niagara Falls in the 1930s examines a shift in conceptions of the role of public art in the wake of the First World War. After a decade of frenetic production of war memorials, in the 1920s and 1930s, public art moved away from the visual glorification of leaders and heroes to representations of the people. Nearly all the sites discussed in this essay celebrate the middle-class lifestyles and identities that help to shape common experiences and construct a form of popular nationalism that Warren Sussman describes as a collective consciousness. This shift, Couteau argues, was the result of a reinvigorated sense of nationalism and a democratization of culture fueled by the economic, political, and social conditions of the post-war years. Coupled with an unswerving belief on the part of the ruling federal liberals in the potential benefits of the automobile and a revolution in tourism. A drive-through Canadian history focuses on a complex public art scheme realized in a Canadianized version of the City Beautiful and Beaux-Arts styles along with the Queen Elizabeth Way linking Toronto to the American border as it runs through the Niagara Peninsula. Couture's theoretical concerns find an echo in the artist's statement and artwork that follow her essay. 
Here, Jason Saint Laurent provides two visual excerpts from the Camouflage series, part of his ongoing performative photography project. Since 2004, this artist and curator has examined and questioned the relation between public art and architecture, as well as the accessibility of major art commissions to the general public. Like James Young, Saint Laurent is concerned with the way that public artworks suggest themselves as indigenous, even geological outcroppings in a national landscape. Wearing materials that more or less mimic the color and texture of large-scale public sculptures, Saint Laurent attempts to camouflage his own body in the works and photograph the results. The viewer of the resulting photograph is then invited to participate in an uncanny and somewhat tragic game of Where's Waldo? Ultimately, the artist hopes to communicate his belief that interaction with public artworks is not only possible, but vital. Bernard Flamand continues this discussion about the creation of national aesthetics in public art and Canadian cultural policy, the airports. Here, the author examines the role the Massey Report from 1951 played in recording the state of cultural production in the period that immediately followed the Second World War, but also in interpreting Canadian cultural needs and setting new standards for popular representations. The report corresponds with a decision by the government to embrace modernism and fashion its Canadian expressions into a recognizable aesthetic identity for Canada, in reaction to both American modernist art and mass culture. In this inquiry, Flamand focuses specifically on the artworks and the architecture of Canadian airports built in the 1960s for Toronto, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. In each case, art and architecture were combined to create places that were inspired by the natural landscape of Canada but reinterpreted in the modernist idiom. For Flamand, the scope of this discussion exceeds historical perspectives and points to issues that concern the current construction and use of airports in other public places. As he argues, if the Massey Report's greatest triumph was the promotion of a national identity based on diversity, then its greatest failure may have been the inability to imagine concretely the various modes of artistic production that would serve this goal particularly the emerging broadcast media and the acceleration of communications and computing technology. Now art is replaced by advertising. The text and artwork that constitute the first part of public art in Canada critical perspectives expose instances of public art that have clearly been instrumental to the formation of collective identities in Canada. The second section, Memory, Politics and Controversies, also pursues this general goal, but shifts its focus specifically towards commemorative projects and the complex processes of collective memory. The function of generating public sites for commemoration and memorialization has traditionally been assumed by governments and community leaders. Consequently, commemorative activity is highly political and involves a power struggle over who and what is to be remembered or forgotten, a process firmly bound by the Constitution, of what Benedict Anderson terms imagined communities. In this sense, commemoration is not simply backward looking or satisfied with the disinterested recovery of past events. By shaping into durable materials versions of history to be consumed by future generations, memory in the guise of public art always looks forward. The commemorative activities in Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta that are explored in this section testify to how certain groups stake out their long-term interests by asserting their histories and their ownership of the land at the expense of others through the process of building memory. 
in I Nostri Grandi Padri, Heroic Nationalism and the Italians of Montreal, the monument to Giovanni Cabato, 1935. Anna Maria Carlovaris explores the problematic of commemoration from a different point of view, that of immigrant communities trying to weave their versions of history into the official histories of their adoptive country. Her essay chips away at the complex history of the Cabot Monument installed in Montreal in 1935, during a period when public opinion in Quebec was shifting from a pro-Italy to an anti-Italy stance in response to the rise of fascism in Europe. It also reflects on the Italian community's attempt to align itself politically and discursively with the English and French communities of Montreal, demonstrating how representations of history are used instrumentally in order to shape the past according to the complex and shifting needs of the present. According to Carla Veras, to study Cabot and the other icons of this period is to reveal the significance of founding myths in the shaping of collective identity, community belonging, and the narrative structure we call national history. In a photo essay titled What's the Point? Photographer, independent curator, and member of the Six Nations Reserve, Jeff Thomas also ponders how perceptions of public art and actual works are transformed as communities reflect on their history and identity over time. What's the Point features the Champlain Monument, located on Nepean Point in Ottawa by Hamilton McCarthy in 1915. The work was originally envisioned as a complex group, including the one and a half times life-size bronze figure of the explorer-cartographer Samuel de Champlain, standing atop an enormous stone pedestal overlooking the Ottawa Valley, and a life-size Aboriginal scout figure sitting on a, in a canoe on a ledge below the towering Champlain. While the Champlain sculpture was installed in 1915, the second part of the monument came later, in the early 1920s. The sponsoring group had not found sufficient funds to complete the original configuration, and McCarthy created an alternative canoeless figure, crouching and holding a bow instead of a paddle. In 1999, following three years of debate, the crouching figure, now renamed the Anishinaabe Scout, was removed and relocated to Majors Hill Park across the street. The debate, documented by Susan Hart in Lurking in the Bushes, Ottawa's Anishinaabe Scout, reveals how some publics lobbied to rectify the problematic representation of a white explorer towering over a submissive Aboriginal figure by moving the scout, even as others argued the historical representation should be maintained and the value system it originally served exposed and discussed. With the collaboration of First Nation artists Greg Hill and Bear Thomas, who both appear in What's the Point, Jeff Thomas reflects on the evolving representations and self-representations of and by Aboriginal people in the public spaces of Canada. Shifting the focus to contemporary art and mapping, an ongoing controversy in her essay Memoir Ardent by Gilbert Boyer, or When Politics Penetrate Contemporary Art, Veronica Rodriguez brings a different perspective to the issue of public representation. Here, the author makes the important case that, in public art controversies, arguments are often drawn from a variety of registers, such as economic, purifying, functional, and hermeneutic, that may exclude to a large degree the aesthetic. Through this meticulous case study, the author demonstrates how a controversy that plagued Gilbert Boyer's Memoir Ardent 
on site from 1994 to 1997, a work intended to commemorate the 350th anniversary of Montreal, was disputed on the exclusive basis of sketches, photographs, and unfound information, all before the piece was even inaugurated. Failing to quash its installation, the debate ceased immediately once the piece was exposed to the public. Rodriguez's sociological approach to art controversies leads her to survey responses to the work in newspapers and other public forums. From this archive, she draws the conclusion that the debate around the Civic Commission mainly served political interests in a pre-election period in the urban community of Montreal. Finally, in an attempt to historicize the public production of memory, C.S. Ogden tackles Pierre Nora's conceptions of history, memory, and lieu de mémoire in Edmonton City Hall as visual archive and collector of memory. Nora clearly articulates a distinction between the process of history and memory in modern societies. For Nora, history is constituted of records and dates. It is inevitably rigid and attempts to pass as objective reality. Memory, by contrast, is a dynamic social phenomenon, the result of the active and selective recollections of certain events, both constitutive of and reflective of the changing needs and aspirations of a given community. Furthermore, groups purposefully enshrine and thereby transform into history collective memory in publicly accessible sites. There, it becomes an essential part of the socialization of individuals. In contemporary scholarship on public art, these sites, where history and memory merge, are becoming known as lieu de mémoire. Here, Ogden chronicles the demolition and reconstruction of the Edmonton City Hall in order to ask a crucial question. If the City Hall that constitutes an archive and a lieu de mémoire is constantly altered, can the alteration of this space redefine the Edmonton community itself? The author is particularly interested in the manner in which civic administrations use public spaces, architecture, and public art in order to activate collective memory and represent contemporary notions of collective identity. The third part of Public Art in Canada, Critical Perspectives, Activist Practices in Public Art Today, scrutinizes specific artistic projects that aim to destabilize hegemonic discourse in public spaces by the introduction of dissonant aesthetic and cultural discourses. In doing so, public art can effect a temporary disruption of place, providing openings where new debates can be articulated and inciting the public to reacquaint itself with its evolving cultural, social, and political surroundings. These practices are examined from the points of view of site specificity, intervention, and the type of community involvement that the Suzanne Lacey has termed new genre public art. To open this section, Bruce Barber steps back in time in order to trace a short history of 19th and 20th century utopian and Marxian writers. According to Barber, these politicized artists and cultural producers saw the role of theoretically informed art practices as part of the avant-garde of the processes of social transformation. Barber draws from his own engagement in politicized art practices and critical thinking and deploys the concept of operative art practices, those that attempt to put theory into action, to wed theory to practice, as it were. 
In Cultural Interventions in the Public Sphere, the author examines the work of contemporary art collectives and some of the interventions that have garnered much media attention over the past few years for innovative approaches to theoretically informed and politically motivated art. These include the Wachner Clauser, the Critical Art Ensemble, and the City Beautification Ensemble. In Queering the Streets, Johann Zitz and Contemporary Public Art as Activism, contemporary art curator Danielle Faria teases out distinctions between what is considered political art, activist art, and activism, particularly in the form of the poster. Discussing the assumptions of many critics and artists who have argued that public art and activism have become inseparable, united in an inherently cooperative model of social aesthetic practice, the author attempts to determine whether it is the form of the poster or its content that engages the public. In doing so, Faria compares art posters by Toronto-based artist Johann Zitz to posters produced for the AIDS Committee of Toronto's Condom Country campaign. This case study leads to a discussion of the potential for queer-forward public art to open up queer spaces in the heteronormative spaces of Canadian cities. Following the tradition of art and social involvement, Kathleen Irwin recounts her own experience of facilitating an interdisciplinary arts and community project in Exhibiting Madness in the Weyburn Project, situating performance slash installation in an abandoned mental asylum. For a year, Irwin and her collaborators, artists, intellectuals, and community members researched the site of the former Weyburn Mental Hospital in Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Their efforts resulted in the Weyburn Project. For two brief weekends in September 2002, more than a thousand spectators took in a dizzying 48 performances of this unique public mixed genre event. Each performance was the equivalent of a walking tour through memory and experience situated within the corridors of the decaying mental hospital, an invitation to discover the site along with and through works of visual art, theater, and music. The event focused on the attention of the visitors of the material traces of the hospital's past, thereby implicating the underlying regimes, structures, and hierarchies of institutionalized mental health practices, and illustrating how social experience, specifically the experience of madness, is embodied and embedded in the architectural structure. Irwin candidly recounts the genesis of this community-based site-specific work. She also explores how new arguments that employ the vocabularies of cultural sustainability have emerged since the project ended to refuel the public debate surrounding the hospital's relative value to the community. The issue of producing new locations for collective action and discourse is then taken up in a way that is both pragmatic and utopian in model for a public space. Here, artist architect, and public activist Adrian Blackwell provides drawings and instructions for the construction and use of a structure suited to open and democratic public discussion and agency. Model for a Public Space is an open source document that provides instructions so that anyone anywhere can build a full-scale version of the structure. Blackwell's system is flexible, allowing for modification in relation to specific cultural and spatial situations through alternative material choices. With this work, Blackwell builds on a decade-long practice anchored in collective agitprop projects and critical examinations of homelessness, spatial dislocation, social exclusion, and what seems to be 
a general feeling of hopelessness in the Canadian public with respect to these pressing social concerns. Finally, Rebecca Burke's Dark Forces at Mount Allison University pursues this collective reflection on art, politics, and activism. By building on the writings of Hilde Hine and Lucy Lippard, Burke proposes a pedagogical understanding of public art that is activist or socially involved, an art that aims to stimulate active audience participation and mobilize its publics for social change. She focuses specifically on two public art interventions by Ian Baxter and A.G. Smith, both of whom came to Mount Allison University in 2002 to participate in the Department of Fine Arts Visiting Artist Program. An artist and an educator, Burke brings notions of activism in art to her classroom in order to advance an exploration of how public art interventions might affect the development of fine art students, as well as impact the various publics who circulate on the university campus. Without making claims for the transformation of her students into activist artists or for a profound change in the university community's perception of art, Burke describes how the visit and work of Smith and Baxter and subsequent student attempts at activist art projects provided a number of thought-provoking examples of publicly accessible artworks whose goal was to expose social and political problems and question value systems. The final part of the book, Contemporary Perspectives on Public Art, is not an epilogue. Rather, it opens the discussion to contemporary perspectives that fuel current explorations of public art. This section emphasizes the readability, sensuality, and performativity of public spaces. It also directs the reader's attention to the mediations that render this art legible. Drawing from her background in architecture and historic preservation, Julie Boivin investigates how contemporary ephemeral public art practices intervene in the experience of urbanity. In Emerging Urban Aesthetics and Public Art, The Thresholds of Proximity, Boivin seeks to examine the convergence of contemporary reflections elaborated in an interconnected theoretical fields that investigate art and urbanity. She introduces into the discussion a sense of the material and aesthetic dimensions of the city, as well as forms of sociability, notions of mobility, and the organization of daily life. Through the lens of what she terms thresholds of proximity, she examines the hybrid public art practices of Montreal artists Marie-Suzanne Dessilet and Jean-Francois Prost, Rachel Eichenberg, and Devorah Newmark. Their performed gestures in public places, individual, collective, or relational, foster direct and sensual encounters, passages between art and life, that allow viewers to reflect on their own sensual experience of urbanity in the contemporary city, an experience that is grounded in concrete places. This performance of everyday activities in public spaces is a growing concern among contemporary public artists. In window displays, artist Kim Morgan proposes exploratory musings for a time-based work that would archive daytime consumer activities to represent them at night, in real time, as projections on the windows of a shopping mall. This work opens up to a number of pressing issues that occupy much scholarship on public art, public space, and the public sphere, including consumer fetishism, technologies of surveillance, public agency, and the right to privacy. 
Ultimately, the work suggests that a public debate has become inevitable on contemporary uses of the places of consumer culture. This concern for the use of space over time is reiterated in Framing Temporality, Montreal Graffiti in Photography, by Ella Chimalwaska, a text that brings together questions that often elude discussions on public art, the legitimacy of graffiti as public art, its insistent materiality, and the role of photography in documenting ephemeral artistic practices. Chmielowska opens her discussion with an exploration of long-standing love affair between photographers and graffiti, a discussion that culminates in the examination of the work of Montreal graffiti artist Omen, whose work the author photographed over several months. She argues that graffiti art, even though it might seem generic in nature, is topo-sensitive, a term borrowed from Umberto Eco, meaning that the sign is partially determined by the place where it is generated or located. Yet, to visibly last, it must be detached from its material substrate and transported into a less substantial, less rooted medium. For her, the photograph of graffito becomes even more exciting when it engages with time. That is to say, when it documents the slow transformation of a site through visual alterations on this site. For Chmielowska, the process of obliteration of a signature piece by Omen, now only preserved in photographs, contains an important clue to the relationship between graffiti and their context. The process of layering inscriptions through subsequent acts of graffiti, she argues, constitutes a visual archaeology that may tell us more about the relationship of the markings to their context than a single static image of a completed piece ever could. The relationship between public art, space, slash, place, and the uses of a given place is also at the core of Stardance. Banjan knows the din. Starting from tiny star diagrams, the artist produced a solid three-dimensional model he then attached to the joint of a fully articulated robotic arm. In the pages of this book, the artist presents models and visual fragments, giving insight into the process that led him to imagine an interactive public sculpture that transforms ambient sounds into the swaying movements of a highly polished stainless steel model of the star group Canopus. Here, knows that in merged scientific and aesthetic imaginaries with mechanical and digital technology and poetic musings on the sensual properties of space. In the very last contribution to Public Art in Canada, Critical Perspectives, The Public Part of Public Art, Technology and the Art of Public Communications, James S. McLean reframes the issue and, in a sense, uncovers a point of re-entry into the field of public art, encouraging the reader to mentally retrace the steps she or he has taken through the preceding essays. He proposes that a public sphere, a public realm that affords common ground for the open discussion of matters pertaining to the public good, is at the conceptual heart of public art. Engaging with Habermas's conception of the public sphere, as well as that of his critics, McLean points out that the contemporary public sphere supports a particular kind of consensus while dismissing most dissent. So, if the public sphere is actually a conservative force, what drives the conditions of change in civil society? For McLean, the discussion gains from being shifted from the ideal of a public sphere to that of publics as crowds and counterpublics, 
and their relationship to the circulation of public discourses. While monumental public art has often served the role of preserving the status quo and muting dissent, McLean argues that certain works of contemporary public art are not merely expressions of human creativity. They correspond to the basic human concerns that speak to matters of consensus and dissent. In doing so, he examines critically the built-in conditions, possibilities, and failures of new media works that rely on communication technologies, works such as the web radio sound piece Freedom Highway by Montreal artist Emmanuel Madan. This essay will be of particular relevance to the readers interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the concepts of public sphere, public, and counterpublic. In the 23 decades since the installation of the bust of George III on Montreal's Place des Armes, conceptions of public art have undergone multiple tectonic shifts. Against the backdrop of the great variety of interests outlined above, readers of this collection will discover how understanding of public art in Canada has evolved along with shifting concepts of art in general. We have indeed understood that by placing art in public spaces, actual or virtual, we wildly multiply the possibilities for meaning, for the production of knowledge, the potential for subversion and resistance, and for concepts of community. This short-circuiting of arts, culture, and politics allows us to conceptualize public art as having the potential to bring the public consciousness the unremitting imperative to think critically about the relations that go on around us, alerting us to specific encounters in culture between people and their very particular spatial and temporary environment. This is a breathtaking endeavor. As readers will realize when perusing the pages of public art in Canada, critical perspectives, Artists have always been at the forefront of the exploration and re-examination of traditional responses to the temporary problems that take shape in public space. They have also often pointed to new ways of thinking and organizing our world. As an exploration of public art in Canada, Public Art in Canada Critical Perspectives is designed to foster more discussion along lines that are already being developed in Canada as elsewhere, and others that have not yet been drawn. Further investigations will undoubtedly pursue emerging reflections on the use of the internet for thinking the deterritorialization of public art. They will examine conservation issues that are inhibiting the integration of new media works into public art collections. They will engage with the contradictions inherent to public art festivals, where international artists, unfamiliar with the specificity of a given place, are nevertheless invited to create site-specific works. They are also bound to contribute to ongoing, broad-ranging, interdisciplinary debates about environmental ethics and ecological sustainability, about advocacy and grassroots participation in public representation or about the sensual nature of space that extends well beyond the regime of the visual. While this collection is by no means exhaustive, it will, we believe, provide a well-rounded tool and point of departure for readers beginning their own reflection on the topic of public art. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.